Hello, welcome to The Freedom Factor, a podcast dedicated to exploring freedom and truth. From medical freedom, to freedom of speech and movement, to religious and spiritual freedom. In a time when our freedoms are being threatened at every turn, many of us are forming a collective space where we can share truth and knowledge without the fear of being canceled or censored. Fortunately, as we've seen throughout history, there are those brave souls who dare to speak out and stand against the tyranny that is threatening to overtake all of us. You will meet some of those brave souls here on The Freedom Factor. I'm your host, Oliver Bardwell. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to The Freedom Factor, sponsored by Iowans for Freedom. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Kent Denmark. He came out Monday to our free Iowa rally and spoke to us at the Capitol. He also spoke to our legislators at a private luncheon after the rally. He made a huge impact, and we want to thank him for coming out and shedding some light on what has been going on with physicians and COVID and sharing a different view than what we've been seeing in the mainstream media. Thank you so much, Dr. Denmark, for joining us. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. You know, you have a great story. I think the first time I saw you, you were actually doing a house call, and we were on a Zoom call prior to the event. Tell us a little bit about your journey from being a pediatric emergency room specialist to doing house calls. Oh, man, it has been a crazy journey. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to share. My background is pediatric emergency medicine, so I've essentially always worked in the hospital and never thought I would be making house calls on particularly sick patients, so it, is, it has been quite a change. I think, you know, what I, what I said on Monday uh, while we were in the Capitol is really just kind of the biggest thing for me. Two years ago, I was absolutely part of the medical establishment, and I believed the majority of what was going on being told in the mainstream media, I believed the narrative. When COVID first started, I was uh, working very hard with my department and uh, the other departments in our health system to make sure we safely addressed COVID. And I had uh, literally boxes of bunny suits and masks and all sorts of supplies uh, in my office ready to go. It was about a month into it that I started to kind of quirk my head and say, you know, things aren't lining up exactly. So uh, it's, it's really been a journey and a process for me to get to the point where last week, well, last night for that matter, but uh, last week when we spoke, uh, I was actually in a patient's home on uh, high flow oxygen, uh, giving some pretty aggressive medications to try and keep her out of the hospital. It's been a journey. I'm happy to talk about any of those particular elements that are what, helpful for you or your listeners. What was it that you said that, that wasn't adding up? You said that it took a few months and you started to realize things just aren't adding up. What were you seeing that wasn't adding up? When everything started to kind of evolve or, or devolve in February of 2020, which is you know, obviously the first case that happened in, in December at least of 2019, probably October or before, but when we started to hear about it, 
it really harkened back to the fears about Spanish flu recurring and just huge death tolls worldwide from this infectious agent. You know, we were looking at where where are we going to put bodies, right? I mean, it was it was very very grim, and so we were we were looking for you know literally lining up bodies, the morgue being overwhelmed. Where are we going to physically put people once once they had passed away? And so certainly didn't start seeing those death tolls, um, and then just the pattern of uh, the illness and the progression to in the ICUs for the sick patients didn't make sense with how a viral disease progresses and didn't respond to normal uh, treatments that should have taken care of those kind of conditions if it was from a, a virus. That caused me to really dig and work with some other uh, physicians nationwide to figure out why there was this discrepancy. And then that led to uh, all sorts of discoveries about different motivations that or incentives that are being provided to uh, health systems for their testing and for the different treatments that they give, uh, regardless of the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of that treatment. When you say um, there was a discrepancy between things that used to work for treating a virus and, and that that weren't working with this, what does that mean? What do you talking about there um you know the lungs looked like a an ards a um you know pretty severe lung injury that damages the substance of the lung itself which is an end point for different kinds of injuries so it can happen with a bacterial infection uh, a viral infection it can happen from say a submersion injury you know being underwater in a near drowning type event Uh, but the Things that normally work with ventilators were seemingly making things worse. And then really the discovery that there were lots of little blood clots, little microthrombi that were occurring just didn't really match up with what we were being told. And trying to figure out why that was occurring was part of the struggle and and part of the ongoing discussion on different websites, different medical websites where people were sharing and their experience. Uh, and sharing what they were seeing and what was working and what was not working. And so there was this huge push for hospitals to have ventilators and to get ventilators and a big ramp up in manufacturing ventilators and then incentive to use those ventilators, right? Correct. It turns out their CMS has been motivating different hospitals and hospital systems with cash for uh, diagnoses, with cash for using remdesivir in particular, or ventilator utilization as well. And then on this side of that initial push, there are dollars available depending on your percent of employees for your hospital that are vaccinated or considered fully vaccinated. And so there's a lot of money at play here that seems to be driving care in a way that's not in the best interest of the patient, in my opinion. And we're hearing a lot about that. So you were working in a hospital setting at that time? Correct. So my background was primarily academic in California. I was a professor of emergency medicine, pediatrics, basic science and medical education, uh, ran our campus-wide simulation center, uh, was head of the director for the Centers for Interprofessional Education, and then ran our fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine uh, for seven years. Transitioned to Oklahoma just about six years ago to run a department of pediatric emergency medicine here. 
and uh, be the medical director and the quality director as well. Uh, my role was overseeing that department and then interfacing with both the children's hospital and with the adult emergency department and the adult components in the hospital as well. Wow. Sounds like a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, was, it was a great position. I appreciated essentially everybody I worked with and a great patient population here in Tulsa as well. It was a good place to work. What precipitated you leaving that position and leaving that hospital? Yeah, that's a great question, Oliver. It, as I came to these realizations, you know, beginning about May of, of 2020, I started looking at the hospital systems themselves. So not necessarily just specifically the system I was employed at, but just the way the American medical hospital system is set up. And I would stand in the middle of the emergency department and all the beds were full, you know, patients in the waiting room that are sick that were unable to see, uh, knowing that there are not beds to move the admitted patients to. And since we were the, you know, referring to the facility for the entire half of the state, there really were not opportunities to, to transfer patients elsewhere. I mean, towards the end, we've been transferring patients to Kansas, uh, Missouri, Texas. I mean, literally all the states around us just because of inadequate resources. My frustration with that was specifically that people in leadership who had the power and ability to make the changes to pivot, to provide the resources necessary to provide care for patients, really did not seem to have the motivation or the drive to make those things happen. And I realized that, you know, I'm standing here in the middle of this mess, doing the best I can, my partner's doing the best they can, the nursing staff, everybody's working as hard as they can with inadequate resources and support, and it's not gonna change because there's just not a drive for it to change to provide optimum care. And so in the spring of 21, I resigned because of my um, administrative position. I had a six-month um, notification on my out for my contract. And so October 15th of 2021 was my last day uh, with that, that health system and my company out doing other things ever since. When you were there and you were seeing this influx of patients, I mean, I talked to Dr. Myers yesterday a little bit, and there was really, and he worked in a hospital setting, and there was really no early treatment. He was trying to treat patients with ivermectin and NAC and hydrochloroquine and was eventually fired for continuing to do so against their uh, recommendations or against protocol, which the protocol was go home and come back when your lips turn blue and you can't breathe. Is that what you were seeing as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, with my focus in pediatrics, we didn't have the huge uh, influx of sick COVID patients initially. The really sick COVID patients we saw were the kids who would have the inflammatory response a couple weeks later, the MIS. So early treatment is a little bit of a di different game in, in kids as opposed to adults. But my partners and colleagues who tried to give early treatment from the emergency department were called on the carpet for that. Nobody was actually fired, at least not yet. Uh, however, definitely threatened. They did not curtail their prescribing practices. And how important is early treatment with COVID? That's everything. You know, if you can catch it in the first couple of days and stop that viral replication with an hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, you just nip it in the bud and you're done. But obviously, if there's early treatment available that is effective, then there's no need for an emergency use authorization. There's probably no need for uh, vaccines to begin with. And definitely when 
pharmaceutical companies come out with other medications that essentially duplicate what ivermectin does, but are pushing them because there's finances uh, to consider. It just makes you cork your head and like, hmm, I wonder why that is. Yeah, I saw that Pfizer had some pill out for early treatment. And Dr. James had said that, you know, it has one mechanism of that helps. Well, like ivermectin has like 20 different mechanisms of the way it works or something. Not a scientist, I don't pretend to understand it, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So, And again, it's using a, a new treatment where you have medications in ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that have been given millions and millions of times with a known side effect profile that is really minimal to abandon those for a new experimental treatment doesn't seem like the wisest course of action to me. So you left the corporate practice setting and now you're in private practice doing house calls or what are you, what exactly are you doing now? That's a great question. I have a couple friends who had started up a home therapy company, essentially, uh, with a little bit of a telemedicine component, but the primary focus is really providing treatment in the home, which can be as simple as early treatment with prescriptions, uh, called in with a telemedicine visit to home IV therapy with fluids, intravenous vitamins, and then intravenous medications. We do x-rays, ultrasounds in the home, all sorts of diagnostic things to provide the best care for the patient without them needing to head into the hospital itself. Are you mostly treating COVID patients then? Yeah, so uh, my friend who started the company a couple of years ago, it was pre-COVID. So at that point, it was, you know, just the IV therapy and vitamins and, and all. But at this point, 98, 99% of it is is COVID treatment. And what kind of success have you had with patients with early treatment? There are two patients who have ended up going to the emergency department getting admitted because they maxed out what we could felt we could safely provide at home. Uh, other than that, everybody's been successfully managed and on their way to recovery or recovered. Have you had in Oklahoma, do you have problems like the doctors do here that are trying to prescribe ivermectin or hydrochloroquine, getting those prescriptions filled? Or Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that was ascribed to the legislators uh, during our session on Monday was just that the national chains are really the most problematic. And we absolutely see the same thing here, that the national chains will try to refuse filling prescriptions that are legally written and and well within our licensure to write. There are several compounding pharmacies locally that have been absolutely great to work with. And so we try to push all our business to them to support them. That's what I've heard here, too, is the compounding pharmacies are the ones that are working hard to keep up and try to help doctors do that. You know, Walgreens and Hy-Vee and different pharmacies around Iowa are not filling prescriptions. And that's concerning because you're the doctor. You're the one who sees the patient. You've done the research. You know what works and doesn't. And yet they're trying to block you from being a doctor and doing what you're called to do. That is an interesting balance because I very much appreciate my pharmacist colleagues, appreciate it back and forth. They have a a body of knowledge that is is parallel to what I know, but in greater depth in many, many areas. And so I really appreciate what they have to contribute. That being said, I think there is very much a political agenda behind this that is not based on that body of knowledge that I respect. It's based on other factors. And so I, I 
absolutely do not want to come across as not respecting my pharmacy friends and, and colleagues because I they're incredibly intelligent and provide an amazing service. So I, I want to be careful and draw that distinction. For sure. So why why does ivermectin work so well and how does it work in treating COVID? Can you explain that a little bit? Ivermectin, um, as you know, won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize for human use, not for horse use, because of the difference it can make in parasitic type diseases and so and viral diseases, obviously. Uh, ivermectin works to stop the virus uh, from replicating. So it's most effective when it's given the earlier in the course, the better, because you're looking at viral replication in the first two to three days primarily as what's happening in the body. And so that's when you have the fever and you start to get the headache. And if it's more of the respiratory var- you know, variety, you have the runny nose cough and shortness of breath. Some people get more of a GI, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea element. But those things all start with the fever and general achiness. And that's, that's when it's the most effective. So when other studies have been done that have shown a lack of efficacy or minimal efficacy it is because the protocol is started so many days into the disease that the viral replication has already occurred. The virus is in the cell and started to wreak havoc there. And it's because the dose is too low. So those two things are what have been really manipulated in the literature to produce studies that say, oh, gosh, ivermectin obviously doesn't work. We need to have something else that would be effective. And what about hydrochloroquine? How does that work? Yeah. So again, early treatment with both of them is the best. It's going to attack the virus. It does have very strong anti-inflammatory properties as well, though. It will get so the the phases of of the disease. You have the viral replication portion first, um, and as that part of it kind of tails off, you have this inflammatory uh, response that starts to ramp up. Three, four days, it starts to go up a little bit. Really, day seven to ten is where we see kind of the steep part of the curve of those manifestations of the disease. And if you can get ahead of that uh, with the hydroxychloroquine, and obviously we also recommend steroids too for that, then you can stop really the secondary effects where you get uh, the microthrombi, you have these inflammation that occurs throughout the body and that can lead to all the other issues we see as well. Yeah, and, and a lot of times the people that end up in the hospital, it's two weeks after they've had their first symptoms and they've done absolutely nothing. I had the experience where... I mean, luckily, I had a good doctor who gave me the, a good protocol with ivermectin and prednisone and azithromycin, and then you know vitamin C and zinc and quercetin and and basically the FLCCC protocol. And so I know what you mean by the you know the first week, the body aches and fever and whatever, and then it goes kind of to the inflammation in the lungs and whatnot. But rapidly after I started taking the ivermectin, I felt better. I had a little bit of a cough, and I had some of that stuff, but it went away pretty quickly. I guess the big medical practice here, their recommendation was go home, push fluids, take some over-the-counter meds and review your quarantine guidelines. And that was it. And it was it was just a paragraph on the note that came through the portal about the test. So I had zero recommendations above that, zero consultation. I mean, I was in and out of their office in two minutes to get the swab and that was it. So there's still really, and to get early treatment is difficult for people. Yes, I, I know that several of the other physicians that were there Monday in Des Moines have 
uh, very long waiting lists just for telemedicine visits, um, just because there are so few prescribers who are willing to prescribe early treatment. The, those of us who are, are able to are just overwhelmed, honestly. I think I know the answer to this, but why the big attack on ivermectin and hydrochloroquine? I know there was a study done where they used megadoses, like 2,400 milligrams, to try to prove that it wasn't effective. And I know that was retracted, but there's been hundreds of studies showing the efficacy of these two drugs and how well they work in fighting COVID-19. Why aren't more doctors speaking out about this? Um, you know, that's that's part of what... I've kind of come out of the last two years. If you had told me 25 months ago that I would be firmly anti-vax for anything, I would have probably quirked my head and be like, ah, I don't really think so, and walked away from the conversation. All of us in the medical profession have been indoctrinated, lied to that there are institutions that have our best interests in mind that we should always just glibly accept uh, what they tell us without looking at it critically at all. You know, 25 months ago, had I ever looked at an insert for any vaccination and looked at a fine print in there? No, not at all. And if, you know, somebody had asked me about that, I would say, oh, it's, it's safe because it's been given and, it's, you know, the FDA says it's safe. And so I think until you have, for the majority of us, until you have the moment that really kind of stops you in your tracks and you kind of quirk your head and say, wait a minute, this it doesn't make sense. I need to look at it. You're just going to go along to get along. And part of the strategy there, I believe, is to keep health professionals so busy, so overwhelmed that they don't have time to stop and think, right? I mean, you know, my colleagues in the emergency department are absolutely doing their best, trying to do their best in sometimes just horrible circumstances, understaffed, you know, sometimes physical facilities are an issue. And they are trying to provide what they believe is the best care to the point where they don't have the mental space to stop and critically think. And so it's important for me to keep that in mind because when I speak to, you know, my former colleagues and they just don't get it, I need to have some grace and remember, uh, I was there not that long ago, really, and I shouldn't be angry at them. I heard Tony Robbins give a great analogy on that once. Um, he said that doctors are the most heroic hardworking people. He said they're standing at the edge of the river and they're jumping in to save people left and right and just pulling them out of the river. But he said they're so busy pulling those people out of the river that they never have a chance to go down the river and see who's throwing them in. Right. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> I, I love that. That's what it feels like. So what, you know, one of the things that was, I thought was pretty powerful in the luncheon that you talked about was the VAERS data. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, and probably not so much for your audience, I'm guessing, uh, but for the legislators, it was important to, to recognize that there's precedent for this, right? I mean, this isn't really, this is not the first time uh, that governmental agencies and big pharma have tried to pull a quick one. So, you know, whether you think back to Nazi Germany, it's kind of the ultimate uh, example of the government using medical um, professionals to do their dirty work, quite honestly. Um, 
uh, there have been other instances as well in Tuskegee, and then there's you know some things we can talk about in New York in the 60s as well. But then there's the swine flu in 2009, where again a big pharma company had data that showed one of their products was causing death five times the mortality rate of the two other products that they had, and they never revealed it. It was only found accidentally during discovery for a lawsuit nine years later at the end of 2017. And so it's important to recognize this is not a one-off. There's definitely a pattern here. So uh, with that, I would say, you know, the VAERS data is uh, the best we have at the moment. VAERS is a government program. So it's the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It is clunky. It is incredibly difficult to navigate. It's hard to put uh, instances in if you believe that you've had, you have a patient who has had an adverse event. Uh, and it's even harder to pull the data out. So I'm dependent on others who have the time, effort, inclination, and skill set that I don't have to go and dig this out. And so the things I talked about and the numbers I'm going to share are actually from Jessica Rose, who has a substack that is absolutely brilliant. She just pulls some great data out. And then Open Bears is the other source where they really once a week publish uh, updates on what they're able to get out of there. So with those two little tidbits. This is data that is updated through January 7th of 2022, so very recent. And if you look at ear side effects related to the vaccine, there are 659,000 plus reports of ear events. So somebody gets the jab and they have changes in their hearing. Uh, They have tinnitus. They can have uh, some dizziness and vertigo or they can have hearing loss, right? That's the whole range of things that can happen. And again, 659,000 of those reports through uh, last week. The pushback from pharma is always, well, correlation doesn't mean causation. And that's where I find Jessica's analysis particularly helpful because she looks at the time from injection until the time that it was reported. So for the ear effects, 49% of the 659,000 happened immediately. So you get the injection and within minutes, you're dizzy, uh, you have changes in your hearing, you lose your hearing, those things are immediate. So half of those occur immediately. And then two thirds of them uh, occur within 24 hours. So very close proximity to when people have received uh, the injection. The other one uh, I talked about was eye effects. And so there are 79,800 reports of adverse events with eye following the injection with the mRNA jab. And again, these numbers are through January 7th. And that can be as mild as a little bit of eye discharge and eye swelling uh, all the way up to blindness. And there are 1,120 instances of blindness following getting the injection from people who previously had normal vision. And again, 45% of those occur immediately within minutes of receiving the injection and two-thirds, 65%, Uh, occur within 24 hours. So the proximity to when that injection was placed in the body tells a story when you get those big numbers. One other thing I didn't talk about uh, was actually depression and anxiety and suicidal events. And there have been 11,000 reports of depression, suicide, uh, and anxiety in VAERS. And the biggest group affected by that is the 30 to 40-year-old, where there have been over 2,000 of those complaints lodged. And the one thing I meant to say, sorry, I got distracted at the beginning of the various thing and jumped into the data real quick. Everybody understands that because it's a clunky system, there is an underreporting factor or the URF as it is. What we see, the numbers when you actually pull them out, don't represent the total of all the events that have occurred. 
before two years ago, it was recognized the standard was eh, it's probably about a 10% underreporting factor. So for every one, there's probably nine other events that occur. There have been multiple individuals who have done uh, number crunching and modeling since then. And you, I think the most robust uh, was done by a gentleman named Steve Kirsch uh, from Silicon Valley, who has had some brilliant analysis. Uh, but he looked at anaphylaxis following an injection, uh, which is a pretty you're going to have a fairly good reporting of that, right? It's there is, Most people are going to recognize, hey, you got the, the injection two hours ago, and now you're having anaphylactic shock. It's probably related to that. And so using that as the standard, he found for other complaints, there was about a 40% underreporting. So the ranges are 5% to 120%. Uh, he found a 41%, which seems you know conservative, but probably accurate. So these numbers I've told you, the important part about that is that these are not 100%, right? So if I say you know there are 43,000 female reproductive issues reported in VARES, there's a lot more than 43,000 because we know they are not all being reported. Some of that is a clunky system. Some of the patient may not come back. Uh, a lot of them, the healthcare provider may just poo-poo it and say, you know, that's really not related to the injection, that's something else. So when I say there are female reproductive issues, 43,350 reported in VAERS as of January 7th, we know that it is some number way beyond that. Well, here's the concerning part. So there's, and for female um, reproductive or menstrual issues, uh, 24% occur immediately, uh, so about a quarter of them. Uh, and then 40% occur within 24 hours. And if you look at the instance, there's a bump in how many are reported at seven days, another bump at 14, another bump at 21, just telling you that it's related to hormones and the hormonal cycle and just exaggerating uh, what where the, the woman may already be in, in her cycle. But I think here's the stunning thing about that particular issue. So if you look at the numbers, there are 11,000 and basically 800, so let's call it 12,000 children Female children aged zero to five who have received the injection. That's 12,000. In VAERS, there are 10 uh, adverse reactions, seven of which died. Oh my gosh. And the deaths, particularly, there was one five month old and also a six month old who the mechanism of death was vaginal hemorrhage. And so they began bleeding. And in spite of best efforts to stop the bleeding, to correct that, they expired. Wow. So I think as a pediatrician scary. and a father and a grandfather, I, I struggle to put in words without expletives uh, how that makes me feel. It, it's just, you know, and I think I, about, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, one of my questions to you was going to be, what do you think about kids getting these shots? But now I don't feel like I have to ask it. I think I know what you think, but <laughs> go ahead and expound on that. I mean, people need to hear it. Yeah, it is. The risk of death or serious injury from COVID in children up to 18, 21, depending on where you draw your line for children, is tenths of a percentage point, hundreds, thousands of a percentage point. It is really nil. To take something that has a known, at least a minimal known side effect profile, and as we're discovering, more than just a minimal side effect profile, and put that into children when they're not at risk, right? You're not protecting the child by giving that injection, if it actually worked, which there's very good data, it does not work at protecting, you know, getting the virus, transmitting the virus, great data that that is not the case. 
even if that was the case, you're now putting that child at risk for an adverse event when it's not going to benefit them, but it may benefit you. And I'm not sure what is more antithetical to what I believe American culture has been of doing the best for the children, creating the best for the children, and always wanting our kids, the next generation, to have a better chance than we did. It's it's medieval. <laughs> it is, it's just evil. And uh, yeah. so wow. I will stop my rant. Right, right. Yeah, and I it, it's so concerning to see this big push. I just saw a um, a flyer for um, a vaccine clinic in the parking lot of some community center on Saturday for ages five and up. And I just want to go there and pass out information to people that show up. You know, here's the VAERS data. Here's why you shouldn't be getting your kids these shots. How can you improve on 0%? It's almost like- what you're trying to do by doing that. Yeah, go no, ahead. go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I think what you're trying to, what you are attempting to do very correctly is give people informed consent, right? Yeah. You need to know what you're putting in your body. You definitely need to know what you're putting in your child's body. And what we're seeing with this underreported data, even the underreported data is not being given to parents to make a smart choice. And so, uh, yeah, what you are doing is what the medical community should be doing. What pediatricians should be doing is advocating for children and for the safety of children, for the best outcomes for children. And that is absolutely not happening. And when it does happen, uh, Dr. Meyer said he was he was trying to give patients informed consent about the shot. He was chastised for it. He was uh, told he shouldn't be talking about the potential reactions or the potential adverse events because he was confusing the community. He's, yeah, he's contributing to vaccine hesitancy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It used to be, I mean, even when my kids were young and they would hand you a sheet and you had all the listed side, potential side effects or some of them. And I would think, wow, I mean, do we really, is this really necessary? I mean, and sometimes I would say, no, we're not traveling to another country. We're not whatever. And if it's only a illness that they might have for two weeks and not even know it, why would we risk these effects? You know, so you really, sometimes you did have an option. And do we even know what, what is in these shots? I mean, I've seen videos of people opening the package insert and it being blank. Is that true or is that are the ingredients listed somewhere uh, not that i'm aware of so i've not been at a facility where we were actually administering the injection so i've not had the opportunity to open a box sure. and look I, I have seen i'm sure the same videos you have uh that is very concerning again two years ago i, I was drinking the kool-aid like everybody else but here's what i would say uh last week actually just before we came up to to the moin there i found an article from 2017 uh from italy and spain where they took 44 different vaccines from for all the different childhood and adult vaccines, put them in sterile conditions, and then looked at the fluid from the inside of the injection uh, under electron microscopy, and then with the ability to identify different inner or non-organic things that were in the injection itself. And aluminum in multiple different ones, zinc, copper, uh, just a, a smattering of metallic inorganic things that had nothing to do with the manufacturing process and didn't even make sense. I think for me personally, the most striking image in the paper uh, is they have a picture of red blood cells. So this is a sterile, normally 
obtained bile be injected into a human being. And when they withdraw that and look at it under electron microscopy, there are actually red blood cells from some other source that were already contained within the fluid. I, just stunning. And yet, you know, in 2017, when the paper was published, didn't really hear too much about it. So I, you know, that's above and beyond uh, the current mRNA therapy that's being given. But I think it speaks to some of the issues that have continued to come to light with all of the immunizations and the strange effects that they have and where that may originate. We've completely ignored natural immunity as well. I mean, it doesn't matter if you've had the virus. It doesn't matter if you have the antibodies. You're still somehow supposed to line up and get one of these experimental shots as if natural immunity no longer is part of the equation. Uh, Yes, and that is very strange. Even stranger than that, people are encouraged while they have the infection to get the injection, which I cannot, has never been a recommendation for you you have the flu right now. Well, let's give you a flu shot. Uh, that makes zero sense. And I think one of the legislators asked what was a good question uh, during our session on Monday at lunch when he said, well, aren't you just going to increase uh, the immunity and help them fight off the infection? And that gets to the, the lack of information about what this jab is supposed to do. So the jab is supposed to take your body's own protein manufacturing mechanism and make have your body manufacture the spike protein, the part of the virus that causes all the issues. The theory behind that is that as your body manufactures that spike protein, then your antibody, your immune system will see it, will respond, will learn uh, how to fight that so that if you're uh, then exposed to it later on, your immune system's ready to go. Well, if you already have active infection, your immune system is already engaged, right? And it's maxing out what it can put out as far as fighting the spike protein. So by getting the injection while you have an active infection, you're just affirming that you're going to overwhelm your body with the spike protein as your body manufactures more spike protein. And so, yeah, the recommendations really uh, do not make much sense. I agree. And if you if the shot is made to fight off the wild strain and it's another strain, a Delta or whatever different variant or Omicron or whatever, isn't that then like the old flu shot? You know, you always, oh, they got the flu shot. Oh, it was a different strain this year, you know, so 80,000 people got it. Does it even, is it even effective against another strain? Uh, that is precisely the right question to ask. What you're referring to is something called original antigenic sin. Uh, which makes it sound very King James-ish. But it is training your body to fight a very specific infection, so specific that if uh, the virus mutates or another variant comes along, your body will will produce antibodies, but they will be against the specific part that may not be part of the subsequent infection. Uh, so instead of having some sort of natural, you know, cross immunity from having had multiple coronaviruses because everybody gets colds eventually, and being able to fight off a Delta or a Omicron because it's similar enough to a cold you've had previously, with the hyper training that occurs as in a response to the mRNA vaccine, you may not be able to fight off any other variant just because you've so hyper tuned the immune system, it doesn't recognize it and can't produce antibodies effectively. 
So natural immunity is definitely more effective then. 100%, 100%. There's great Israel data um, about that and looking um, out to 16 months that natural immunity still have more than what would be considered adequate uh, antibodies available to fight. And obviously we are seeing with the mRNA uh, vaccines, what, what is termed effective is lasting maybe three to six months. Wow. And then you get the booster and then another booster and then another booster. And I, I thought I had read that um, someone who's had the virus and has antibodies has a greater chance of injury from the vaccine or the shot. It does seem like there's more adverse events and uh, there is fairly good data showing that it takes your immunity from what would be very good to kind of good. So it actually decreases your ability uh, to fight off a wild virus. You know, and this is not, this is not a new thing. Uh, RSV is a uh, respiratory syncytial virus. is a virus we see every year in pediatrics in particular. Um, it is a respiratory spread virus. And there are, you know, children that die from it every year. It's a serious infection in the infants. And in 1965, they attempted to have a vaccine to prevent RSV infections. Uh, it was, the test was done in uh, poor uh, African-American communities. And what they found was that there was immunity that was produced as a result of the injection. However, as soon as the children were exposed to an actual wild RSV virus, so one that was not exactly the same as what they were presented with in the vaccine, uh, that they had a more severe disease course and several children died at an age where they probably were not at risk to have died from just normal wild RSV. And so that production was actually shelved and put away. And so there is precedent for uh, utilizing technologies that uh, we don't totally understand all the repercussions. But in the past, there's been a willingness to pull those from the market. And obviously, that's not the case with these particular injections. We're living in a world of insanity right now, it seems like. So early treatment is key, right? Yes, sir. Early treatment is key. So to keep people out of the hospital, instead of doctors just sending them home and saying, come back when you're more sick, which really doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why anybody would think it would make any sense. Early treatment is key. So if someone starts to feel it coming on, they need to find a doctor who's going to treat early and doesn't have a problem with doing early COVID treatment. Correct. Correct. Okay. Well, I want to be cognizant of your time. I know you have another patient coming up here soon. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming out Monday and speaking to the people of Iowa and the legislators of Iowa. It's so important that they're hearing from brave medical professionals like you because you're being silenced in the mainstream media. So it's like we have to bring you directly to our lawmakers so that they can hear some of the truth and and get a different perspective on what's going on. So we really appreciate that and everything you're doing. So all the best to you and your practice and your patients are lucky to have somebody that's going to come to their house and treat them early and keep them out of the hospital. Well, we were doing our best. Thank you. And, and yes, Monday's event was great. I thought the legislators were very engaged, asked intelligent questions, and seemed to have the motivation to do the right thing for their constituents uh, the forefront in their minds. So it was a pleasure to be there. Thanks so much. And uh, I, I look forward to having more conversations with you and 
other doctors like you. So thanks again, many blessings. Everyone, please uh, like and subscribe to the page. Dr. Kent Denmark, thanks again. We'll see you all next time. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Freedom Factor, please share it and subscribe to our channel. There has been an attack on freedom of speech, and there is only one narrative that is currently being accepted in the mainstream media. Any information that is in opposition to that narrative is being censored. So it's up to us to share the truth in every way that we can. Alone, we may only be one drop of water, but together, we are the ocean.